Hi, I'm Wendy Dean. And I'm Simon Talbot. And this is Moral Matters. Tom Mayer is a medical director for the NFL Players Association, executive vice president for leadership at Logix Health, clinical professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University, and a senior lecturing fellow at Duke University. Simon couldn't join me for the recording. Dr. Mayer and I discussed his work with the NFL Players Association and the importance of active and adaptive leadership from all members of a healthcare team. Let's have a listen. Dr. Tom Mayer, I'm so glad that you are here with us today to talk about the work that you're doing in physician wellness and also with the NFL Players Association. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I really appreciate it. And thanks for the sacred, sacred work that, that you do. Uh, it really is just that. And uh, so to be a small part of that by joining you today is an honor for me. Well, when we talked the first time, it was such a great conversation that I knew that we just had to share what we were talking about and resonating back and forth about. I think our first conversation was slated for about 30 minutes and lasted over an hour. Yeah. So we clearly had a lot to talk about, and I'm really glad that you're here today. So could you just tell the listeners what you're doing for work now? Well, I have a couple of different jobs. Uh, one is I'm the medical director for the NFL Players Association and have been doing that for the last 21 years. I represent all 2,500 players, their spouses or significant others, their kids, and their, and particularly through COVID, their parents. So I often say I'm one of the only doctors that has 10,000 patients. Uh, but I also work uh, a lot in leadership developing and training with Logix Health, a, a group I work with, uh, and I do a lot of speaking. Uh, impossibly, people ask me to come to their places and, and share what I've done in terms of um, my thirst for things to, to go better and be better and be better designed. Yeah, that's a great thirst. We need that now. So what's your background as a physician? Well, I'm an emergency physician. Uh, my board's in emergency medicine, uh, as well as pediatric emergency medicine. And uh, so that's where I came up and through. Uh, a huge focus on trauma and trauma systems, not just, I always believe that healthcare is, are, uh, every healthcare system is, is just that, a, a complex adaptive system. And, um, and so I come with that lens of going to work and knowing what I'm going to see, but the people who walk in the door are not sure who they're going to see, or sometimes yeah. even if they're in the right place, because they didn't plan to go to the emergency department that day. Right. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. No one wants to be there. They don't wake up and say, wow, what a nice day. <laughs> I think I'll go to the emergency department. Right. So they don't want to be there and they're scared and that comes out in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, and I always start by talking to them and just saying, I'm sorry this happened to you, mm. but I'm delighted to be your doctor today. Yeah. So how did that segue into the NFL Players Association? It's funny because you, you get these connections where others don't. And that is my entire career, I had this passion for the way we're working isn't working. It's not working well enough. It's not working well enough for our patients. 
hence the quote, continuous quality improvement, uh, but it's not working well enough for us, not nearly. Us meaning all of us in healthcare, not just physicians themselves, but the entire team. And so uh, people say, how long have you been in this space? And it's really been since I became a physician, thinking that how do we make this better? How do we tap into the resources of the people who comprise the team in a way that helps the team self-design a better way of doing things instead of having it designed for them. Uh, and that fits with the NFLPA because when I came on board, there were no heat acclimatization guidelines. Uh, Corey Stringer, a tackle for the Vikings, had just died August 1st, 2001. And so those went into place. Concussion protocols went into place. Uh, not all of which were, or very few of which, were even welcomed, uh, in all honesty, by the NFL. Uh, they didn't see the need for why do we need to get better, why do we need protocols, why do we need guidelines, why do we, why do we need consequences for those who don't follow the guidelines. And uh, it's, you, you've spent your career um, fighting against the wind, fighting the system to, to say it's not good enough, we've got to improve it. And in my case, that's been the same passion, the same desire. It just happens that uh, that part of my career played out with the most powerful sports organization, perhaps the most powerful organization in the world, the National Football League. Yeah. So I, I want to be clear that this is the Players Association. This isn't the NFL. Right. So you, the good guys, are on the, the really, <laughs> we're the good guys. <laughs> right. You're on the side of the players to protect them. Yeah, and knowing knowing that. I represent the, the 2,500 or 10,000 voices of the player patient, and I always say the player patient. Right. My counterparts with the NFL, honorable people, uh, well-educated people, represent 32 billionaires. And that's a different focus. It doesn't mean that, that we have to be at cross-purposes, but, uh, but sometimes we are. Yeah, and I think there's an analogy with the healthcare system. We work within a healthcare system, but we have to be willing to knock on the door uh, or or break down the door of the C-suite to say, folks, this can't continue the way it is because the toll extracted from your people, our people, our friends, our colleagues, does not match the benefits enacted by the systems and processes in which they work. Yeah, for sure. And ideally, you're all working together to the same end. Right. And, you know, I, I have very few. I'm, a, I'm famous for quotes, and I'm sure I'll sprinkle some in. But uh, my wife says, you know, the, the one that no one I've never heard anyone say except you is no one looks in the mirror and thinks, what a knucklehead. Uh, I usually use a little more salty term there, but I, I, <laughs> given that I'm on such a, a great podcast, I won't do that. Uh, but, but people don't look in the mirror and say, I'm doing a bad job, or the system I am uh, have designed and am responsible for, for managing is not delivering. Uh, it's not that, that the toll extracted is far above the benefit enacted for the people who provide the service and without whom there is no healthcare system. Right. So the first time that we talked, you said that you had known about the concept of moral injury long before our article came out, which I thought was great. Yeah, I, I, my, our middle son, Kevin, Maureen and I have three wonderful uh, sons. Kevin, the middle one, uh, 
was a Marine infantry officer, uh, had served two highly kinetic tours in, in mm -hmm. Afghanistan, and has a couple of, of medals with a V for valor to show that, you know, he was in the midst and, and he stood up and did what he needed to do. Uh, so I actually began to, to read Shea's work, which uh, 2014 in that ballpark range. And, uh, you know, Kevin was, was deployed at the time and uh, really began to understand the potential of far beyond, as, as you and Simon have so perfectly said, not just PTSD, but, but the concept of moral injury as applied to healthcare, to physicians, to nurses, to our colleagues. And whenever someone in the C-suite says, well, can we afford to invest in a better system, whether we call it burnout or moral injury, and the answer is you can't afford not to. Number one, just from an ROI standpoint. And number two, you know, these are your friends. These are your colleagues. These are the people that you claim as, as the best of the best in, in the world, and they've chosen your, quote, best place to work. Um, you can't look them in the eye and see their suffering and not be moved by that. Yeah. Yeah, that's really true. And we hear that so often, that people choose where they work very carefully. They choose it because they think it will allow them to take care of patients the way they believed when they went to medical school and residency that they would be able to do. Yeah, I think I always, uh, when our boys were younger, I used to, every day I was in town, I, I would take them to school and I would drop them off together because it was, the, they went same school pre-K through 12. And I always said precisely the same thing to them. One more step in the journey of discovering where your deep joy intersects the world's deep needs. I yeah. swear I said this to them. They prefer to take the bus, as you might guess. <laughs> they, they don't want to hear that from their dad, maybe from their mom. But I think that's what brought us to healthcare. Uh, physicians, nurses, you know, environmental services and everybody else is that deep joy of caring for people, for making a difference, uh, as hackneyed as that can be at times. But the truth is that we could all be doing something different. And what I fear has happened with moral injury is they've become disconnected from that deep joy. The obstacles of, of our uh, the, where we work, how we work, what we do. And, you know, Paul Battalden said it very well, and, and our mutual friend Don Berwick has, has popularized it beautifully, I think, when he talks about Paul saying every system is perfectly designed to get precisely the results it gets. So I'm not surprised that there's the depth of moral injury that there is. I'm surprised that there isn't more uh, people with moral injury given the circumstances in which they work. Because, and you and I have talked about this, the data are clear, the, the, the higher the rate of moral injury, uh, the more the resilient those people are. It's very paradoxical. Very paradoxical. Right. Simon talks a lot about this, Simon Talbot. Mm -hmm. He talks about how we need to flip how we're thinking about this. And it's like it's like the, the fighter jets that were coming back in World War II. And they had holes in the wings and holes in the fuselage. And they said, well, let's armor up there. And one brilliant engineer said, hang on, those are the ones that are coming back. Let's look at where there aren't holes in these and armor up there. And so when we think about who's wounded in healthcare, 
we should be looking at the folks who are still hanging in there and saying, wow, they're really, they're something. Yeah, I agree with that. And I love that metaphor. Um, I think that, that that paradox to me is easily explained in, in, in that the people who are most resilient are have the most defense mechanisms, the most the highest reservoir of being able to fend off the frustrations caused by what we're asked, demanded to do until it breaks. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's like a, a pediatric emergency physician, you know, kids, blood pressures don't drop off the table until they really lost a lot of blood because they have so much adaptive capacity. So, uh, and, and I prefer that term to resilience as you and I have talked before, but, but I think that there's this profound shame that people feel when they admit to moral injury, to burnout, to the sense that I'm just not good enough. I thought I was better than this, you know? And, and we, we, we have got to erase that. We have got to help people through that. The interesting thing that we found is when we give people the alternate language from, of moral injury from burnout, so many of them will say, it's such a relief to know that it's not me. Because right. I always thought it was about me. And if this is about the system, well, we can change the system. Right? That's possible. Well, and the people, you know, I, I always say three things. One, every healthcare team member is a leader. Lead yourself, lead your team. Every healthcare system team member is a performance athlete, no different than my NFL athletes, involved in a cycle of performance, rest, and recovery. Performance, rest, and recovery. So invest in yourself, invest in your team. And number three, the work begins within but it quickly leads out because yes we work on ourselves to reconnect to our deep joy and as soon as that happens we say okay i'm going to fix the system and processes i'm going to fix the culture i always call systems and processes i call hardwiring flow what's hardwiring flow stop doing stupid stuff and start doing smart stuff right now who's going to do that and in intelligent organizations with intelligent people, it's not the people in the C-suite. It's not the people with the titles. It's the people who do the work because they know the work and they know how the work is not working. Hence, the way we're working isn't working. Um, and it takes, I'm going to talk tomorrow to a large group of leaders to say, no offense, folks, but you're not the key to success other than to create a milieu, a, a catalytic reaction, an enzymatic reaction to say to the folks, you not only have permission, you know, I knight you to be able to go out and do this work. Right. And that's the important part of it is empowering people with that capacity for change to say, I believe that you can do it and I'm going to allow you to. I'm going to encourage you to not just allow. Right. And, and, and you know, that, that leads pretty quickly to almost a, um, a positive demand, a way of saying, if you want me to fix it for you, I will, but I won't fix it right because I don't know what I'm doing because I don't know what you're doing. And, and that takes a transformational leader. And I always uh, often kick my talks off by saying leadership is worthless, but leading is priceless. Because yeah. leadership is a, is a noun. It's something you say. 
Whereas leading is a verb, not just a verb, but a verb in the active voice. It's something you do. So I think the thoughts, the, the, uh, the, the words that we say are important only in as much as they force us to lead through the, the way we are to where we need to be. And I think we had so many good examples of that during COVID, of that sense of empowering folks on the front lines to make the changes that they needed to make their work effective. There were legions of that. Yeah, I, I, you know that I was the command physician at the Pentagon on 9-11 and stood up the same year uh, in, to become the medical director of the NFL Players Association. And then October was the inhalational anthrax crisis, and I was the incident commander for that in the in na- nation's capital. And, and I thought 2001 was an anomaly. It turns out it wasn't. It turns out it was right. what the future holds for us. So... Leading in crisis, I, I don't think you really are ever leading until you're in a crisis. And that's what happened with COVID, I think. Everyone was in a crisis, and everyone was called to stand up. And, and you know this because we've talked about it before, but, but there's nothing new about this. I mean, there are centuries of examples of people standing up and showing their best and doing things they did not think they were capable of because it was a crisis. And from medieval times uh, before then and after then, and, and therefore, how do you sustain that, um, that fuel of I'm, I am leading constantly and I'll continue to lead? And what I've heard again and again is that the permissive environment was present, especially in the first several months of COVID, the first half year, and even into the second year, there was a very permissive environment around COVID. And since the majority of the crisis has wound down, that permissive environment does not exist in the way it did two years ago. And so people are finding it harder and harder to change their systems because they've, they've sort of concretized again. Oh, I agree. I, I think that's precisely what happened. And that is, in the midst of the, of the crisis, it, leaders were forced to say, you know, do the best. And, and I will right. support you when you do that. And, you know, there's, as you know, many places in healthcare now, a new person will come in, a new leader will come in and say, everyone's got to reapply for their job. Hmm. Okay. Um, got it. You know, I'll quote the Harvard Business Review articles and all that. But when, when Admiral Nimitz came into Pearl Harbor, uh, within days of Pearl Harbor being attacked, he sat down with every leader uh, and he said, I trust you and I trust your team. You're good people yeah. and you will do a good job. Don't look to me for the answers. Well, I know who I want to work with. Correct. And I know who I would probably say, you know, thank you, but I'm not going to reapply for this job. I've been <laughs> applying for this job my whole career. <laughs> right. Right. And and I think that's that's a big part of what clinicians are struggling with at this point is even though I've also met a lot of administrators who are there to do absolutely the right thing, they want to do the right thing. I think we've created structures that don't allow for the two sides to work effectively together. Yeah, those bridges have got to be uh, built, rebuilt. Uh, the, the lessons learned through leading in crisis 
uh, we have to understand that we're what I call a perpetual whitewater of change. We're, you know, class five rapids constantly. There's no calm, placid stretches anymore. We go from change to change to change. In my experience, I think is your is is people don't mind change; they mind being changed, right. because they know how to work. As imperfect as our system is, and as frustrating, and the fact that the that the toll extracted far exceeds the benefits enacted, they at least know the rules. They know what's expected of them, and now we're going to have to invent new rules. Hence, you, the people who do the work, have to invent those rules for us. Yeah. I think what people get frustrated by is change for the sake of change. Sure. Not change for progress. That's okay. But change just because there's a new leader who has to go in a different direction. Right. I mean, there's the new sheriff in town. And and sometimes the sheriff is a female sheriff. And to be clear, I mean, that conjures or has a connotation uh, of a male image. But we have, as you know, phenomenal female leaders. Um, who, I mean, to me, the greatest, greatest leader of all time was probably uh, Francis Hesselbein, uh, the CEO of the Girl Scouts of America, who said famously and, and with an infinite wisdom, it's, it's not a case, leading is not a case of what to do. It's a case of how to yeah. be. So true. Now, that could only have come out of the mouth of, 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 of uh, uh, you know, a woman, a mother. Uh, and those lessons, I think, have got to be relearned in terms of how to be, meaning how to enable, uh, encourage, and then infinitely demand, hey, don't bring a problem in without a solution, because you know what the problem is better than I do. Yeah. So... What would you say to folks, though, because I often get pushback from that, which is I bring in a solution and then I get told again, well, how are we going to pay for that? I don't have that deep knowledge because they won't share the finances with me or how the economics of my healthcare system work. And I'm trying to take care of patients. So one of the things that we talk about all the time is, you know, let's flip the script. And instead of the clinicians being answerable to the administrative offices, let's ask those offices to support their clinicians on the front line? Well, first of all, I've had the same experience. And, and I, thir- I certainly think that, that uh, being a great clinician embodies, entails, includes understanding finances and demanding what, you know, every healthcare organization says we're completely transparent. And the answer is, you know, I always talk about the words on the walls versus yeah. the happenings in the halls. Right. And, and they're not the same thing. You know, what's proclaimed about transparency, and yet I can't get simple numbers for how uh, directs and indirects uh, build up. Because form follows finance. You know, systems and processes will follow the finance. And look, we, we all went, nurses, docs, went to professional school. And we do, we do fiscal calculations about drug doses and physiology and pharmacology and, and the, uh, drug interactions all the time and, and patient safety, HROs, um, Carl Weick and Catherine Sutcliffe's work. So it's not like it's beyond our can, but right. we got to know what we're calculating. And you know, I'll never forget the time um, uh, a nun who ran a healthcare system early in my career said, you know, Doc, no margin, no mission. You know, <laughs> that mission's important, but we've got to figure out a way to, to do it. And so that's why I say, if you, if you hardwire flow and simply say, 
stop doing stupid stuff, start doing smart stuff. It's amazing how it, it often doesn't cost more money, but even if it does, it's money, it's an ROI. It's a return on investment, a way to expend things and decrease, for example, left without being seen in the emergency department from astronomical numbers to reasonable numbers without, uh, without a, a, an astronomical cost. So I think it's all in there. But uh, to me, it's, it, I, I'm not sure it's rebuilding because sometimes it wasn't there. But it certainly means trust. Because to me, innovation does not occur at the speed of intelligence, creativity. It, it occurs at the speed of trust. Correct. Because, uh, you know, it, 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 Samuel Beckett was superb at this. He said, try, fail, try again, fail again, fail better. I think that's brilliant. And, but if you don't have trust to be able to devise a new system or, or improvements of the existing system and feel like your head's going to be taken off if, if it doesn't work out, then, then that organization's never going to innovate. They might adopt best practices a little faster than the organization down the street. But they're never truly going to become an innovative, best place to work, investing in the people and not just the results. Because the vast majority of leadership training in healthcare these days is about getting metri better metrics. How can I get you right. to deliver me better metrics so I look better to the board, to the community, to bond rating agencies, you know, pick a deal. Instead of saying, we're going to have leadership training that will make you feel that you're a better person, that we've invested as you as an individual. And the leaders who understand that are going to transform their organizations and be hugely financially successful, in my opinion. Right. So this is also a lot of what we talk about, which is believing in the people that you hire. You hire the right people for the right reasons. Put them in their jobs and let them do them. And listen to them when they give you feedback that they need something different. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, my advice to anybody at any level of any organization, not just healthcare, but certainly uh, in healthcare, is don't hire for smart. You can teach smart. You can get them to be yeah. smart. Hire for passion. Hire for creativity. Hire for people who have the self-reflective capacity to, to want to get better and to know that the only way to get better is to ask others, what could I have done to make your job easier today? What, as an emergency physician, how could I have made your job as a nurse easier today? Because when you start doing that, you make the patient's lives better and you make the job easier, which is the only way people will ever change. If they see self-interest, self-motivation, intrinsic motivation, you know, Maslow and everybody else who said that over the decades, over the centuries, really. The only other thing I'd add to that list is courage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To stand up when they see something that needs to be different. Well, um, Truman and uh, Eisenhower, a, a number of other people, and Catherine Graham, frankly, a life worth studying and, and a uh, personal history is her autobiography. Uh, said that courage in battle is is very common, very common. And, but courage in, in, in real life, in normal life, is is far too rare. And so I couldn't agree more. And and uh, I think if you if you want to 
if you want courage in people, you have to hire right. You have to upfront say, you're going to be confronted. Don't like it, but it's going to happen. You have to have the courage to stand up and say, this is not right. This is not the way things should be done. Because otherwise, moral injury is, is a logical consequence of having to swallow uh, doing the wrong things for, for the wrong uh, reasons to the wrong people at the wrong time in the wrong place. Right. And oh, by the way, when you stand up, I'll have your back. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think that that's, that's the way we've all raised our kids. At least we've said that. Hopefully we've done it too and said, no, I'm, I'm behind you. And, and if it's true that healthcare or any organization, it applies to any organization, particularly healthcare because of what we see and what we do and the impact we have on lives, um, you know, we should treat them as family. And if, if they were family, you'd say, I got your back. I got your back. Right. You're going to make mistakes. Fail better. Right. Well, Tom, this seems like a great place to wrap it up. Do you have any last thoughts for folks about how to think about transforming their organizations? Because everyone can be a leader, no matter what your position is. Well, yeah, I would say wake up in the morning uh, and say to yourself, I'm, a, I'm leading today. I'm going to leave a legacy today. What's that legacy going to be? And that way you, you lead yourself, you lead your team. But there's a cost extracted from any hard work. And so I got to treat myself as a performance athlete. I got to invest in myself and I got to invest in my team. Um, and as I said, you know, the work begins within, but it quickly leads out and it quickly leads out to changing culture and to changing systems and processes by stop doing stupid stuff and start doing smart stuff. And, uh, you know, to put a cap on it, as you uh, appropriately said, that's going to take courage, but I'm going to have it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope this is the first conversation of many. Absolutely. And, you know, if I can ever help you guys in the work you're doing, the answer is yes. Uh, ask me the question later. Uh, in terms of, well, okay, what do you what do you want me to do? The answer is always yes for you. Super. Thank you so much, and, and likewise with you. Great, thanks. Well, Wendy, thank you for continuing that recording in my absence. Obviously, with all of these things, I sit down and listen to them in, in quite a lot of detail, and it just sounded like a, a really both interesting conversation, but clearly a conversation where there were tremendous parallels that I had not expected to hear in the work that Dr. Mayer was doing, and particularly in his role with the NFL Players Association. Yeah, isn't that funny? I mean, I had the same reaction the first time I talked to him, and I thought maybe I'd misremembered it. And then I had this conversation with him, and I thought, no, I didn't. It, it really, it is surprising. And I think it's something to keep in mind as we talk about how do we move forward towards solutions? And a lot of people immediately bring up the question of, should we unionize? And I think absolutely we should, con we should consider that option, but it's not without difficulties as well and challenges. Yeah, it's not the be-all and end-all. Right. I really enjoyed him talking about the I guess the way to put it is the lack of intention of some of the things that continue to happen. 
the fact that whatever system you're looking in and t- trying to make better, no one's looking in the mirror and say, saying, you know, I, I want to be a knucklehead today. Right. I, I want to be an idiot. <laughs> right. You know, so right. much of this stuff is, is so horribly unintended. And so many of the challenges that we face, there are a lot of people thinking about, but not necessarily empowered to do something about. You know, I think when leaders can't act, it's frustrating for them, but it's also frustrating for the people that they're leading. Mm-hmm. And even if they can't do anything, sometimes it might just help to say that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the other things that he talked about comes up often when we speak to others, which is this idea about, well, can we really afford to invest in a better system? Right. How do we go about doing it? And this is expensive. And and I would argue that sometimes it's not actually that expensive, but for the things that do cost money, I did enjoy hearing him say that, you know, frankly, sometimes you can't afford not to invest in a better system and you can't see suffering and not be moved by it. And, you know, you think to the NFL and you think of some of the changes that have happened over the last five or 10 years, and they've been pretty striking for an organization, which is a, you know, incredibly profitable organization. It is important that we recognize that these are changes that have cost money that they've made and and we really do have a responsibility to do some of the same things. Absolutely agreed. Well, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. Our producer is Dave Young at Widget Studios. Our podcast coordinator is Ariel Morton. To learn more about the nonprofit Moral Injury of Healthcare, you can go to our website at fixmoralinjury.org. And our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram links are in the show notes so you can continue the conversation. We love sharing these conversations with you and the team works really hard to make this seem effortless. But in reality, each of these episodes takes hours of coordination, scheduling, recording, editing, and posting, and it costs a lot of money. So if you like what you hear and you appreciate the work we do, we would love your help. Follow the link in the show notes to our website and make a donation. Share episodes with friends and colleagues or post a link on social media. And if you subscribe, rate, and review the show, that makes it easier for new listeners to find us. Thank you, as always, for listening. And stay well.